0: Talking history. This is News Talk.
1: We shall fight on the beaches, we shall fight in the hills, we shall never surrender.
0: And out of that silence came thousands of voices. The strategy of the white man has always been divide and conquer. As one small step for man, one diaphragm for mankind. Auktiloin, Argus, Akoisa.
1: Good evening and welcome. We're Talking History on News Talk 106-108 with me, Patrick Gagan. In tonight's show, we're looking at the history of Dublin Castle and how it became such a powerful symbol of British rule in Ireland. And we'd love you to email us your thoughts and views, talkinghistory at newstalk.com. Dublin Castle was the centre of English and later British royal government in Ireland from the 1170s until it was handed over to the Provisional Government of Ireland in 1922. A large early 13th century castle built on the orders of King John stood on the site until it was gradually replaced between the 1680s and the 1770s by the present quadrangle of palatial buildings. The only intact portion of the medieval castle to survive this rebuilding is the large circular southeast corner tower, known today as the Record Tower. And a new book provides the first substantial history of the castle and provides a comprehensive historical background to the results of archaeological excavations undertaken between 1961 and 1987. And the book is intended to be the first of a three volume series dedicated to Dublin Castle and the archaeological excavations carried out there. And the book is the occasion. And the opportunity for our panel discussion tonight The book is called Dublin Castle From Fortress to Palace, Volume 1 It's published in hardback by Wordwell Books The authors are Sean Duffy, John Montague Kevin Mulligan and Michael O'Neill And uh, to discuss the history of Dublin Castle tonight I'm delighted to be joined Uh, by Professor Sean Duffy one of the authors and Professor of Medieval Irish and Insular History at Trinity College Dublin Professor John Montague another of the authors who's Associate Professor in the College of Architecture Art and Design in the American University of Sharjah in the United Arab Emirates and he's an expert in Irish and British architectural history and 18th century mapping and Con Manning who worked as an archaeologist with the National Monument Service until his retirement and someone who has a particular interest in medieval archaeology and architecture and he's directed many. Many excavations at many sites around the country, including at Clonmacnoise, the Rock of Cashel and Dublin Castle. And he's a past president of the Royal Society of Antiquaries of Ireland. Uh, Well, as I say, you are all very welcome. But uh, Sean, we might begin with you and the symbolism of Dublin Castle, because it's a very powerful and potent symbol in the history of this country.
2: It is indeed, Patrick. And um, I mean, I I suspect most Irish people have fairly ambivalent views about about the castle. And even I think, um, to be honest, most Dubliners don't really engage with the castle. It'd be interesting to just, you know, walk down the street and stop 100 people and ask how many of them have ever actually been inside the place. I don't even mean inside the building, inside the the actual grounds uh, of the castle, so I think it's always been a place apart in Ireland, and um, so, but it is nevertheless a hugely significant thing because, as as you were saying, it it is emblematic of, I suppose, our <laughs> this you know the famous eight hundred years, but it's now eight hundred and fifty years of oppression, if oppression it was. Um, and so, uh, what I find important about the castle, apart from you know the sheer magnificence and the scale of it, is. Is that it? It's like a metaphor for the British presence in Ireland, and indeed for foreign uh, um, involvement in Ireland. Because the 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 English, the people we used to call the Normans, but because none of them had ever set foot in Normandy, so they call themselves the English. So that's what we tend to call them nowadays. Uh, before them, it had been a Viking fortress. So it was always an alien impost, if you like, on on Irish soil, and uh, it it it. it you know, its its rise and its fall uh, is is a metaphor for the story of foreign involvement in Ireland. And I think you can say the same about its history since independence. You know, the fact that it, it became the place where you brought crooked politicians and civil servants to tribunals and where there was a tax office and so on in it. It has it, it seemed uh, that the new state didn't want to have anything to do with it. And so it... it, it, it It uh, encapsulated that post-colonial feel of the, the free state when it was established as well.
1: It does have a, a resonance, though, for maybe a younger generation or a different generation because, you know, you think back to 2015 and the marriage equality referendum, the results are there and the huge crowds gathered and uh, later referendums. So that perhaps there's a a connection with a, a newer audience who see it as a, as a place for celebration.
2: Yeah, exactly. And it, I mean, I think the state has finally realised that it's sitting on this treasure here that is Dublin Castle and investment is taking place in the castle and there is more, there is a strategic plan now for the castle uh, going forward. Uh, when we had COVID and the government uh, the cabinet office that's in Leinster House wasn't big enough to fit the the, the cabinet um, and with social distancing it decamped to Dublin Castle and this volume that uh, we're talking about tonight was launched In Dublin Castle, after a cabinet meeting, the Taoiseach just left the cabinet room, walked across the the quadrangle and into to to launch uh, the volume. And he talked about how, you know, they quite like it being in the castle and they would like to bring it back more towards uh, the centre of Irish life. And I'd love to see them uh, doing that. There's absolutely no reason why it shouldn't be the case that every tourist who's contemplating coming to Dublin, you know, when they have their, their Guinness hop store and all these these other things on, on their list, that the castle isn't up there uh, because it is a truly magnificent thing which should be at the heart of the city. But it's, it's kind of sort of in a little oubliette there, you know, done uh, slightly off the, the main drag.
1: And I've done the tours and I've brought my students on the tours and they are wonderful and you get an incredible insight into uh, modern Irish history, but also uh, a much longer history as well. And you get to see, you know, the chapel, you get to see kind of some of the old rooms, like it's, it, they, they do take you all around. And do you think it's because maybe Kilmainham overshadows it that, you know, that Kilmainham has a certain resonance because of 1916 and other rebellions and Dublin Castle maybe gets forgotten about?
2: Yeah, all these things are, you know, matters of marketing. You know, it's a question of how you sell a product and the people involved in it has been a labour of love, Kilmainham, the restoration of it and the presentation of it to uh, the Irish people. So, you know, absolutely fair play to them. But, of course, the same story can be done in Dublin and Dublin Castle. And I think, I mean... It's, it's it's actual complexity, you know. It, it's the paradoxes associated with it, and it's the the way in which it's a, a, like a kind of a palimpsest of Irish history, layer upon layer upon layer, which obviously you don't get with at at Climainham, that um, that makes it such a, a valuable resource. So I'm delighted to see this project underway, and then I know that the the, the vast state. Um, uh, reinvestment uh, program is going to take place in it in the, in the coming years, and and there are fantastic people working there. The people that you were talking about who do the do the tours, uh, and they're really bringing it back to life and bringing it back centre stage. You know, we so we, we've got to stop that kind of fear of the castle, which Irish people inherited after it was the centre of English rule for um, seven hundred years. So I I I look forward to you know a kind of a completely new era. We've had 100 years since uh, the castle was famously handed over uh, to uh, the Free State authorities. So let's wipe the slate clean with that 100 years and start the next 100 years on a completely new phase where the castle is completely rehabilitated in the Irish story.
1: And the story is told that when Michael Collins arrived for the handover, he was seven minutes late and rebuked for that. And he said, well, you've kept us waiting 700 years.
2: (laughs) Yes, indeed colleague of ours, John Gibney, has uh, been doing fantastic work on, on the handover. You know, the symbolism of that and the kind of artificiality, if you like, of that day of, of the handover. But, I mean, what, it is one of the images. When you you think, of, you think of the kind of iconic images of the whole decade uh, that we have been commemorating for, um, it seems now for about a century, but it's, it's only a, a decade that image in, in the yard in Dublin Castle of the soldiers, that is one of about a half dozen that everybody, that you know, you can't, that are indispensable. And why is that? Because in that one image, the handover of Dublin Castle, you capture the whole story of, of, of that momentous event.
1: And Sean, it is interesting when you think about the way, I suppose, the castle became the... You know the place where there any 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 serious rebellion in Dublin wanted to capture. You know Robert Emmet had these elaborate plans to try and seize it in 1798. Uh, there were all these stories of uh, the torture that you could hear from the from from inside the castle, and that became a big part. That it really was this. It was it was the Bastille effectively for Ireland.
2: Yeah, and. Um I mean, I mean, the castle was, throughout its history, first and foremost, a fortress. I mean, later on, it becomes a palace for these kind of dilettantes that are being sent over from England, these these uh, viceroys. But, you know, in its essence, it was a fortress. And originally, it was a Viking bastion here in, in Ireland. And then subsequently, under the English, it was the headquarters of, of British rule. And everything happened in the castle, you know. um, I mean, there was a great hall in the medieval castle, which is where parliament uh, met. Now, parliament in the Middle Ages in Ireland was not the parliament of the people of Ireland. It was the parliament of the English settlers in Ireland. There was never a native Irishman, uh, a member of that parliament, who wasn't a bishop or an abbot, a senior abbot. Um, and it was where the four courts met. I mean, we have this magnificent building down on the quays, on the, the four courts. And uh, most of us don't know what these four courts are. I think there were the, four, the courts of Chancery, the court of Exchequer, the court of King's um, Bench, and the court of Common Pleas, and those four courts met in that same hall in Dublin Castle. So it's the place from which justice was dispensed uh, throughout the country, insofar as there was justice available to you know the Irish uh, when, in the heyday of, of Dublin Castle. So if you want to counter... The justice or the the sense of injustice, uh, the the counter British rule, and make a strike for justice. And if if you think you know that uh, the 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 parliament that existed there was not your parliament, and you want to make a stand against it. And if you think that you you know you 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 want to counter English and later British arms in Ireland, and you have this fortress there. Well, if you don't take the castle, you, 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 it's, it's all a waste of time. So it is central to it. And, of course, all the way through the Middle Ages, the castle never fell at any stage. So it was a formidable thing. So even when the English colony in Ireland uh, that it was established back um, you know, in the 12th century, even when that was in, on its last legs, dying legs in the late Middle Ages, before the reconquest began under Henry VIII, and Elizabeth I, uh, the the Irish still couldn't take that castle. And so uh, it was literally impregnable. And
1: that is why so much of the sort of rebellious attention was focused on it. And John, that is, I think, such an important part of the story. The fact that it was seen as impregnable, that no matter how many attempts were made or how many plans, it just seemed like uh, this Irish Bastille would never fall.
3: Yeah, that's really interesting, Patrick, and and Sean is right about that. But it's not for the want of trying by the British themselves. I think that's the kind of interesting or almost comical aspect of it, was that the castle nearly fell to itself um, in 1684 when the fire destroyed all of the residential buildings and the Great Hall and uh, many other other of the internal buildings. One of the things that uh, the Earl of Arran, Ormond's uh, son, did was that he um, created, he, he was, this fire went in 1684 and that's what kind of made the, you know, caused the castle to be um, redeveloped in the 18th century and in the 19th century. But on the night of the fire, Aaron was the only one that was there in control and he had to set a kind of series of these controlled explosions within uh, the castle yard, uh, which just kind of saved uh, the whole thing from going up. But in, interestingly, the you know, when Sean was talking about the parliament House. The Parliament House was also the storehouse during the 17th century for the for the um, the gunpowder in the castle. And this was very controversial within the administration. But luckily, they'd just been moved out about a decade before, uh, you know, the whole thing would have gone up. So there's kind of a number of uh, times when, you know, through kind of almost self-sabotage, uh, they managed to kind of blow up the castle
0: themselves.
1: Yeah, and I wonder, John, was there that sense of complacency? Because you even see it in 1916, it doesn't seem to have been very well guarded. And if they had made a, a greater attempt to, to seize the castle uh, on Easter Monday, they might well have succeeded.
3: Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think this, my my knowledge of 1916 wouldn't be so great, but I, I mean, I think they did did get as far as, kind of wandering in, in 1916 and then kind of wandering out again because I'm talking about the rebels in this instance because they didn't really understand this, its strategic importance. And the same thing with Trinity College itself, which kind of faced all the way down Dame Street and, uh, you know, had a shoulder down O'Connell Street. They was something else that they kind of failed to see the strategic importance of. But in terms of complacency, I think there was lots and lots of complaints went uh, to London about you know the parlous state of the castle, and there's some very good surveys that were made at the end of the 16th century, uh, one in 1585, and another one at the beginning of the 17th century uh, in uh, 1625, I think, if I remember correctly. And they were extremely detailed, but of course the cash was never going to come uh, for all of the kind of works that they wanted to do. Um, you know, in, in uh, 1685, when Thomas Phillips made a series of maps of all of the fortresses of Ireland. He put together a great plan for a, a citadel out at Ringsend, but the cost of that was going to be 125,000 uh, pounds, English pounds sterling at the time, which is I, I don't know what the calculation would be, but you know, something in the tens of millions perhaps now uh, for doing that, and of course you know there was no prospect of that happening.
1: Yeah, Sean, we might have been out of a job now if uh, if the rebels had succeeded in taking Trinity and then if the government had uh, shelled it to bits. And, of course, that's a, a an interesting what if. Uh, if Dublin Castle had been seized, if maybe Trinity had been seized, uh, they would have been better positions to defend and uh, harder for the British to justify shelling.
2: Yeah, well, that's absolutely true, of course, Patrick. But, I mean... Uh, i mean you are you are you one of these uh, what if type historians, no. <laughs> counterfactualists because i mean i I seldom bother with things like that, but be, um you know because they're utterly imponderable. um and nineteen sixteen, as we were saying, it was just the latest in a very long line of these going all the way back to Robert the Bruce when he he invaded Ireland. In uh, he and his brother in 1315, they came uh, as far as Castleknock. They mar- having marched down from Ulster, Dublin Castle was in was in, as John was saying, a powerless state at the time because the English colony, of course, as like all colonies, it was always neglected unless there was an emergency, and so it was in an, a deplorable condition. They could have mar- uh, stormed the castle, it seems then, and. Robert the Bruce was setting his brother Edward up as King of Ireland. We so we could have had a Scottish kingdom of Ireland. So that's another what if? and, and Silicon and Thomas's rebellion, likewise in fifteen thirty four um, extraordinary thing the the castle was at the center of that that would failed and of course the the Geraldine um, dynasty that had dominated English Ireland for the late throughout the late middle ages they that went into abeyance as well and 1798 as you said I, and nobody knows better than you uh, the situation with uh, in Robert Emmett's rebellion and so on so there have been these all the way through through the centuries uh, but the fact is the reason that there's so much Irish um concentration on trying to get their hands on the castle was because it was so vital to English interests. But the reason that there was so much neglect is because the castle sort of typified English neglect uh, through the ages. And one of the things that I found most interesting in writing my the sort of half a millennium or so of the history that I wrote is that you can use the castle, you can chart the castle's a rise and fall as, as an indicator of the fortunes of the English colony in Ireland. You know, when the English colony in Ireland was doing well, money was spent on, on the castle. When things were going bad, money falls off in, in expenditure in the castle. And so, uh, you know, the classic story of the English involvement in Ireland is they come over in 1169 intending to conquer the entire country and it is doing magnificently for about 100 years, as was the castle. Uh, then the colony starts to go into a gradual decline. Expenditure on the castle really dries up completely, and then when English fortunes improve in Ireland, money starts to get paid for uh, on, towards the castle as well. So you can use it literally as as a as, as Irish history
1: in microcosm. So it, it is that central to Irish life. That is very good that you could actually just uh, uh, take the history of the castle, look at its high points and when new buildings are being constructed and uh, times when it's being neglected and then you can just map that onto to the state of play in the country. That's when English rule is weak and that's when English rule is strong.
2: Absolutely, yeah. So it's a truly extraordinary thing and I, I don't think I had quite appreciated that The significance uh, of that and so that is you know that's the story that we have been trying to tell in this if you're looking for a book that's telling you about you know gossip about the the viceroy's wives or something it's not this is not that kind of a book it's a book that's trying to describe the actual the, the the layering of buildings on that site the you know when you what is there today uh that is a legacy from the past. When did those buildings arrive and why? What was... Uh And when you peel back one layer, what is the layer that lies beneath that? And ultimately, when you get down to the very bottom, you get down to the archaeology, which, of course, the whole project began with Con Manning's work on on the archaeological excavation.
1: Well, Con, let's bring you in then at this point, because uh, you did so much to bring this project together. And it it depends so much, as Sean has said, on that archaeological work and on those excavations. So talk to me about what that reveals and uh, why this work is so significant.
0: Hello, yes. We, we, uh, my colleague, uh, Dr. Anne Lynch, myself, uh, directed excavations at Dublin Castle between 1985 and 1987 when they were doing a big development there in connection with the 1990 EU presidency, rebuilding and doing some new buildings as well on the uh, west and north sides of Dublin Castle. Uh, we found a lot. We found uh, areas with Viking uh, deposits, pre-castle deposits, if you like, um, the remains of houses, et, et cetera, just like in Wood Quay, but in rather small areas. Uh, then we found information about the castle. We were digging mainly in the moat of the castle on the north and west side. So we didn't get a lot uh, on the interior of the castle, but we got some of the towers at the corners and where the wall was. And we got this massive moat, which was something like uh, 20 meters wide and 10 meters deep plus. And uh, and the people of Dublin were filling up this moat with rubbish over the centuries. Hmm. And uh, we got a lot of that rubbish. So a lot of what we got uh, from the 13th century on probably refers more to the people of Dublin uh, than it does to the people who are living in the castle. But it was very, very interesting nonetheless, right from the 13th century up to the 17th, 18th century. And uh, Anne Lynch was digging near the Cork Tower and she got the remains of a whole street that was uh, uh, demolished in the around 1805 or so when they were building that big wall around... Uh, the west and north sides of the castle, at castle steps, etc., to improve the security of the castle. So she got a lot of glass uh, and pottery, etc., in that area, right up to about 1805. And we have plans of that street, and we know some of the people who were living in the different houses, etc., up to that time. And this was over the moat of the castle,
1: and Con, it would have would it have changed how you viewed the history of the castle? Discovering all of these new things,
0: uh, it would It would have thrown a lot of uh, information on the exact line of where the uh, the walls and the towers were. It was, you know, you have the record tower still there; that's very clear. You have the Birmingham Tower, which was rebuilt uh, in the in 1775 or so with thinner walls on its original base. So you knew those two corners uh, pretty well, but the rest was a little bit nebulous as to where exactly it was. And we were were able to pin down quite a lot of that. We got the base of the Powder Tower, which was the northeast corner tower. And within it, we got part of the defences of Viking Dublin in a circular base in the middle. It's a circular tower. So they dug down walls of the tower, but they left a plug of uh, earlier deposits in the centre, and we got those, and they can still be visited. If you take a tour of Dublin Castle, uh, you go down into the Undercroft, and you can see this, which is the oldest monument in Dublin, really, this stone-faced defensive bank uh, dating from the 10th century.
1: Okay, well, tonight we are talking about the history of Dublin Castle. And we're going to take a quick break now when we come back. We'll be talking about the early history of the site, its medieval decline, and then its rebirth. So stay with us here on News Talk. Well, welcome back to Talking History as we discuss the history of Dublin Castle and tonight's show is inspired by a wonderful new book, Dublin Castle from Fortress to Palace it's volume one of a three part series published in hardback by Wordwell Books. The authors are Sean Duffy, John Montague, Kevin Mulligan and Michael O'Neill. It was launched by the Taoiseach Micheál Martin in Dublin Castle and has a wonderful uh, foreword by Taoiseach Michal Martin at the start of the book and to discuss the history of the castle I'm delighted to be joined by two of the authors as well as with someone who played a crucial part in the development of the project. So i uh, delighted to be joined by Professor Sean Duffy, Professor of Medieval Irish and Insular History at Trinity College Dublin, Professor John Montague of the American University of Sharjah, Con Manning, who was with the National Monument Service for so many years and did wonderful work as an archaeologist uh, there and directed many excavations, including at Dublin Castle. Well, Sean, let's talk about the early history of the castle, its development, and then I I suppose, how it went into decline in the medieval period.
2: Yeah, Patrick, I mean, I think most people have an idea that the Dublin castle has a connection with King John. And there's a famous letter that King John wrote to Ireland in 1204 ordering that a castle be built. And I think when I started to write my history, I thought I was going to be doing the story from 1204 onwards. Then I discovered that actually it had been around for many centuries before then because when the the Vikings first arrived into Ireland um you know their raids began the Irish annals tell us in the year 795 and they established a ship base for themselves in Dublin in 841 so we normally date the start of Dublin's history to the year 841 and but the the, the place that they picked for that seems to have been at the Confluence of the Liffey and its tributary, the Puddle. Most a lot of people, I suppose, nowadays don't really know that 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 there is a there is a river that literally flows under the streets and merges with uh, the Liffey down in the quays. and it's where where that Puddle slows up, as it get as it approaches the Liffey that a pool gathered, which gives us the the place named Dove Lynn, the Black Pool. That seems to have been where the Vikings moored their ships, as it were, and built their first uh, camp. And that is the thing that eventually in time becomes a dune, as the Irish annals call it, a fortress. And so Dublin Castle, the site of the castle seems to have been the site of the Viking fortress also. And, uh, and the, when those Vikings, even after they had been settled in Dublin for literally hundreds of years... They were still regarded by the Irish as in, in some way alien. They still needed a fortress and that fortress guarded what became the town and then later the city uh, of, of Dublin. And so some of the defences that were found in the archaeology relate uh, to that and a lot of the early documentary material is, is talking about Irish attacks on this dune or attempts to take the dune uh, over the centuries. And when the English... People we used to call the Normans when they the, the likes of Strongbow they came to Ireland in the late uh, 1160s. That was the place that they had to capture, and immediately there seems to have been not no hesitation in establishing Dublin as the headquarters of this new English colony in Ireland. And that meant they, in turn, needed a castle. And w- I, one I have to say, one of the most exciting things for me was discovering that King John's 1204 castle wasn't the first English castle. About um, 35 years earlier, um, King Henry II, who was the, the English king who conquered Ireland, who came over, spent the winter of 1171-2 here in Dublin. He, when he left... Uh, issued instructions for a castle to be built at that point. And I think there might be some hint uh, of that early 1170s castle surviving in the archaeological uh, record uh, to date. But the main castle is is definitely a castle that dates from 1204. And they did start it in the typical kind of way with these sort of circular uh, corner towers on it, uh, very much in the style of Norman castles uh, elsewhere, and they pumped lots of money into it uh, initially, and it was certainly booming for a long uh, for a long time, and it was a magnificent fortress to begin with. But um, we were talking earlier about how the castle is a kind of a metaphor for English rule in, in Ireland. And as English rule went into decline in the late Middle Ages, so too did, uh, did the castle. You can see that in the fabric uh, of it, it really. And in all the reports that are coming back to Westminster about this, this castle, which used to be so magnificent, should be magnificent if it's an emblem of, of English rule. And yet it's, it's, a, it's a decrepit mess. And so eventually you come to the, you know, the era of Henry VIII when they're reconquering Ireland, they have to rebuild the castle. And those are the people who create the magnificent modern um, palace uh, uh, that, uh, that began
1: to take shape from the mid 16th century onwards. So when when England is neglecting Ireland, the castle is neglected, and when they're focused on Ireland and uh, ensuring that their rule is enforced, Dublin Castle is is getting the money, the investment, and it's and it's strong.
2: Absolutely, yeah. So and it, that's what's what I think is is magnificent about the story, and that I think is what this book, you know, achieves because uh, you you can uh, you know you can trace that history of investment and neglect. Followed by investment, followed by neglect, uh, all the way through uh, through it. So, I'm uh, well, you know, I'm very proud of it.
1: And John, that brings us on to your period of expertise uh, then, because uh, when you look at those years, I suppose in particular between 1560 and 1684, you see a lot of changes in that period, and uh, a lot of things built that you know probably would surprise listeners.
3: Yeah, good, Patrick. You're right. I, I mean, one of the things about the castle, and just going back to some of the points that Sean was making in terms of writing it and the surprises that emerge. And one of the things about writing about a period like this is just the kind of paucity of evidence that you have. And yet we're actually very lucky with some kind of crucial plans and crucial images that emerge that give us, you know, fantastic insights into the whole arrangement of the castle. And it's around this time, you know, when the kind of the book moves into the section that I'm dealing with, as you say, from the 1570s or 60s to about the 1680s, that there's a whole cluster of buildings, uh, a kind of almost a chaotic uh, intensity of buildings are are assembled on the interior of the the, still essentially the 13th century uh, ensemble, the kind of the enclosure with the four great round towers. And one of the best pieces of evidence that we have is a map made in 1673, which is called the Dartmouth Plan because where it is now Um, it's in the Staffordshire record offices uh, in the UK, but it just is an extremely detailed line plan of the layout of the castle and where all the different buildings are. And it kind of gives us an insight into what was there, the the great hall that was laid out in, that was first built in the middle of the 13th century and kind of rebuilt in the middle of the, or in the early 14th century has survived. And as noted earlier, the parliament was held there and, very strange kind of going on that the Parliament was held in it. Sort of, medieval halls are often kind of aisled like churches, kind of a basilica shape, but a central aisle and two kind of you know thinner aisles on the side separated by an arcade and all the evidence that we have and some slight documentary evidence suggests that that's what this was, and there's a little staircase on the outside which tells us that you know there's access to an upper area and that's where the parliament was uh, likely held but the really strange thing was that they had the gunpowder all stored like a huge quantity of gunpowder stored in the, on the undercroft or in the undercroft um and there's a great story that you know arthur chichester who was the lord deputy in the early 17th century tells about how the irish you know were complaining about the the, the catholic the old english uh catholic uh, deputies didn't want to come to um you know, Parliament because they thought it would be blown up. Uh, but he was thought this was very ironic considering the gunpowder plot that had taken place just, you know, a decade earlier and that the Catholics were all behind that and he would have nothing, uh, you know, uh, to do with moving the Parliament somewhere else. And it didn't indeed move to College Green uh, to his own house, actually, as it turns out, uh, late until the 1660s or the early 1670s. So that was one, one piece that's clear on this plan. Another section is a whole cluster of buildings built by Sir Henry Sidney in the 1570s, a residential range with presence chambers and great dining hall and his own lodgings, and it was all built around kind of, you know, ceremonials and um, uh, kind of public spaces and private spaces. But probably the one the building that I most regret not having any kind of, and let's say, elevational evidence for or anything other than its plan is, is a gallery that was built in the 1620s by the Deputy Henry Carey. Uh, who was uh, Lord Falkland. Um, and this is a, a fascinating building that connected from the north to the south, cut the, the whole castle in two, really, created a back court on the east side. Um, it was an open arcade on the ground floor and then closed on the upper floor, glazed probably. It's a really unusual species of building, although kind of galleries like that exist, like, say, for example, in Kilkenny Castle, where they have, you know, um, uh, portrait galleries, uh, that's sort of where it comes from originally, you know, just kind of a long space. This is a different building altogether. It's just there as an object in itself to move you from one place to another. It's not part of another building. And it brought you from the residential range to the Lord, well, what was later the Lord Lieutenant's house, but was before that the council chamber. The council chamber was also held. The council, you know, the Privy Council also held in the castle. So the real intensity of buildings with, you know, we're, we're lucky to get some, you know, very interesting evidence for.
1: And the secondary buildings outside the protection of the walls are fascinating. The way you uh, possibly had a windmill outside it,
3: a, a watermill. Yeah, not a, along the Datterack. Oh, sorry, along the Puddle. Um, so the Puddle fed the moat, but as Con, you know, was talking about earlier about the, the the moat being backfilled and creating, you know, for him providing such a an extraordinary amount of evidence later on. The Puddle in my period had stopped. Actually, you know, the moat had stopped being a liquid one, and if, if you like, it was just a ditch, a dry ditch. Um, but the puddle did run uh, as an open stream at the back of the castle on the south side, close to where the, you know, the, the castle garden is now. There was a water mill along that. And interestingly, as well, then when it opened up into the lower castle yard, which is on the, you know, the eastern side, I mean, the same place where the lower castle yard is now, that great big steep uh, hill with the, you know, the beautiful castle or Chapel Royal on the, on the uh, left hand side as you move up. The upper yard. That lower yard had stable buildings in it. A huge stable building built by uh, the Earl of Stratford, uh, Thomas Wentworth. Um, he tried to kind of compete with Inigo Jones and said, "Oh, I, you know, uh, not to insult uh, Inigo Jones, but I'm a very pretty architect myself," uh, Thomas Wentworth said, and uh, he built this huge, beautiful stable buildings with uh, you know for 60 horses and was trying to build up the, the troop of horses for. Uh, for the state was his ambition. Uh, so Enford, of course, is the, the great hubristic uh, Lord Deputy who uh, was recalled in 1640 and um, was tried by Parliament and executed in 1641, a kind of a harbinger of what was going to happen to Charles I uh, less than a decade later. Um, but he had a you know, really interesting impact on Dublin Castle. And, and just that last point of the, the puddle opened up into a horse pond in the lower castle yard. I don't know how it didn't all just roll down the hill because it's such a steep site. Uh, But there's a horse pond with a bridge across it. uh, And all of that then, you know, gets covered in in the late 18th century into the 19th century.
1: And uh, Con, that brings us on to the next stage of development then up to about 1750 when uh, you see certain buildings uh, being replaced and in a way the medieval castle is becoming the, the more modern version.
0: Yes indeed. Um, 1684 uh, there was a major fire at the castle and the son of the Duke of Ormond was in residence as Lord Deputy and he barely got out and what he did to stop the fire spreading to the powder tower which was where the gunpowder was stored at this stage and if that went up it would have blown up half the city. Uh, was he used gunpowder to demolish some of the buildings close to where the fire was? So he effectively destroyed half the buildings uh, within the castle at that stage. It was still the medieval castle. So uh, the Surveyor General at the time, uh, Robinson, he drew up plans to build a fine uh, array of buildings. Uh, The state apartments to to some degree um, on the south side of the castle, and the plans for these uh, survive. They're in the book, they're they're in the British Library. And uh, when James II uh, came to the throne, a Catholic, Robinson uh, was uneasy and went back to England. But his uh, joint uh, Surveyor General Molyneux um, built. The first part of these buildings, it was the, if you like, the eastern end of the State Apartments, and got them built within a couple of years, and that was the first uh, piece of the Upper Yard to get built. The rest of it took a long time, with all the uh, the Williamite-Jacobite wars, etc., and it wasn't completed until about. Uh, seventeen sixty uh with the building of the Bedford Tower and uh, the justice gates uh, gates and the gates the blind gates this was the the completion of the the upper yard so it took about seventy years really to uh, to complete um and later than that, as i mentioned before the the Birmingham tower was rebuilt in 1775, I think it was. And then other things happened then, like the garden front to that original building built by Molyneux was added about the 1760s or so. And then going on into the 19th century, then uh, the Chapel Royal was built by Francis Johnson uh, about 1811, that sort of time. Um, replacing an older brick-built uh, chapel that was there, and probably from the late uh, 17th century, and we have a wonderful picture of that in the Royal Society of Antiquaries of Ireland, uh, which is also in the book. The book has a great array of images, probably all the images you, you would uh, historical images you would ever want uh, of the castle plans. Prints, uh, watercolours, uh, oil paintings, etc.
1: Very good. Well, we are going to take another quick break now when we come back. We'll continue our discussion of Dublin Castle and look at its continuing significance in Irish history. So stay with us here on News Talk. Well, welcome back to Talking History as we continue our discussion of the history of Dublin Castle. And I'm joined by Professor Sean Duffy, Professor John Montague and Con Manning, uh, formerly of the National Monuments Service. John, let's talk about the castle more widely then, because you look at... I suppose, how the the castle has played, and we've talked about it with Sean, has played such an important role in Irish history over these years. You get to see the different layers, don't you, by studying the the way the, the buildings have evolved and how it's changed its shape and, and how it looks, and I suppose how its role has evolved.
3: Yeah, definitely. And um... Just go to go back to the idea of the images that survive as well, and that idea of the role of the of the castle in the city. I mean, there's some fantastic map evidence, including like the late, you know, like the 18th century map, uh, Roke's map, um, and shows the way that the castle is integrated within the city. Um, Brooking is also a really fascinating source, not least because of its map, which you know is not always so trustworthy, but for this fantastic image that we have of the castle while it's being uh, redeveloped. But I think one of the most interesting images that we have of the castle in terms of its impact or its kind of political and ceremonial impact on the city is the image um, in John Derrick's image of Ireland from 1581 of Sir Henry Sidney leaving Dublin Castle. And it's a beautiful block print or woodblock print uh, made uh, in fabulous detail. And many other of the images in, in that collection you know, have been corroborated for their historical authenticity. And I've looked at this, you know, in huge detail and found one or two things that I, you know, find a little bit uh, curious. But nevertheless, what it shows is Henry Sidney processing out on a horse, a series of horses in front of them all with their, you know, ceremonial um, uh, livery on, uh, their spears up in the air, a trumpeter, a boy leading his horse. Sidney himself is wearing a felt top hat, um, and behind him are a series of more horses. Up behind him again, up on the tower, there are three heads of rebels um, stuck on spikes uh, and, a, and an inscription that says, these trunkles heads do plainly show each rebel's fatal end and what a heinous crime it is, the Queen, for to offend. Um, and as, long, as, as well as that evidence, we kind of you know, see an image of Christchurch in the distance, which is where they're processing to, uh, and we can see part of, in fact, a transept uh, of Dublin Castle and the uh, the side windows of that, part of Castle Street. Um, but the other thing is just that kind of display of military power. I mean, it must have been, you know, fantastic in one way, particularly if you were a loyalist, to witness this for its pageantry and for its colour and for the, the sounds of the trumpets. But also, um, uh, you, you know, this, this told you who was there. This was the the kind of um, great uh, displays of power like the ones we see in China and Russia where all of the tanks are wheeled out uh, once a year. Uh, And the same thing here, these knights on horses uh, with their weapons made it very clear to Dubliners who was in charge. And uh, and, and then, of course, that connection to the church. The the forecourts itself, which we mentioned earlier, which would be in the castle, went to uh, Christchurch, uh, eventually, before it moved to uh, the Keys in the late 18th century, but there's an intimate relationship between, um, you know, Christchurch and the castle, and you know a number of other buildings close by. Um, the original St Andrew's Church uh, had been used as a stable for the castle for a while. Wentworth was, um, you know, appalled by this idea uh, and reinstituted it as as a chapel. That was at the end of Palace Street, where the AIB Bank is now. It was only later. Uh, that the, you know, the other St Andrews and Suffolk Street was built. So, there's a, you know, there's all kinds of ways in which the castle threads out into the city in terms of the roots, in terms of uh, its uh, fabric and in terms of that kind of political pageantry uh, and, you know, the expression of power.
1: And John, that major fire that took place in April 1684, how much damage did that do?
3: Um, quite a lot, actually. Uh, All of the residential range. Actually, what's interesting, if we look at the, if, you know, readers can conjure in their mind, and I'll try and conjure it for the brooking map, has a fabulous image. It looks like it's a cutaway image of the castle, but that's only because one of the walls on the north side has fallen down, the northeast side, that gives us this view in. Amazingly, there's actually a couple of buildings in that that survive from that period, even though by 1728, the reconstruction of the castle was long underway and we see these fabulous arcaded buildings um uh, on the south side uh, which is the beginning of the, you know of the range that we see now that, that have survived but behind that um there's at least two buildings one of them from the sir henry sydney phase from the 1570s a dining hall that has two panels in front of it there's also a gatehouse with a great rusticated uh, ground floor, which might might have been built by Essex, or it might have been a little bit later. And then to the right of that, or to the west of that, uh, just at what was or what is the Birmingham Tower, there's a low hall building, which might actually be the first hall that was built. It it actually abuts onto the Great Tower, and uh, Con Manning himself, in his archaeology and in the articles that he's published on it, was made you know a very strong argument for you know a kind of a a castle complex or at least a relationship between a hall and round tower that predates the great big square ensemble that we've been looking at for you know, most of the, or that we've been talking about for most of this discussion. Um, so that goes, unfortunately and tragically, the arcaded uh, gallery goes um, uh, and uh, more or less all the rest of the house. But as Khan says, like the the powder tower, which is where the, the Duke of Ormond had moved the powder eventually, that it had gone from, the castle garden to Merion, to Crumlin and back into the castle again in the 1660s and 70s, but you know by this kind of inventive use of gunpowder by exploding uh, the buildings in the way, he prevented you know probably the greater a huge part of the city from being exploded, um, which was always a danger of the castle. And just the last point on that is that you know the castle has this kind of really strange multifunctionality. It's in a very awkward site. Uh, it couldn't expand. Uh, the English governors who went there kind of hated the place. They said it was like a prison. Uh, they always were, were making plans for buildings somewhere much more salubrious elsewhere, including Wentworth, who built Jiggins Town in Nace County, because there are a beautiful, crazy folly of a building built in brick. But the other thing was that, you know, that this was a palace. It was a fortress. It was the parliament, It was the four courts. Um, it was the council chambers. Um, and uh, it was a powder keg and munitions of the of, of the uh, of the English uh, rule in Ireland. So it was a kind of an impossible building to manage, and just by peril managed to somehow survive uh, up until the you know handing over power in the 1920s.
1: And, Con, after the fire, when it's rebuilt, I suppose in that phase you see it changing from being a fortress to a palace, and the late 17th and the 18th century is the time for all of those balls and state occasions and entertainments, Mm. and it very much became part of the the social scene for the elite in Ireland.
0: Yes, indeed, Uh, and uh, if you look at the image uh, Malton produced of the upper yard you can get that uh, whole palatial feel about it with the Bedford Tower and a whole lot of military uh, and other people around the upper yard. Yeah, of course, the castle, um, St. Patrick's Hall, etc., was used so much in the 19th century and into the early 20th century for levies and all that um, and was the center of... Social social life for the aristocracy and the gentry, I suppose, mainly. And, uh, you know, you have that image by Rose Barton of the uh, carriages going up Cork Hill towards the castle as well.
3: I'm just flicking through the book here in the later chapters. Um, You know, it's just a stunning collection of images uh, in all kinds of media, including the gorgeous George Petrie drawing of the castle, um, uh, in, in, you know, in, in watercolour of the castle chapel with, you know, the lower castle yard with the soldiers and doing their kind of uh, routines on their horses. There's just a stunning array. There's a gorgeous Broca's pencil drawing um, from uh, the 1820s, I think, as well of Castle Street and that entrance uh, at the side of City Hall. Or, or the royal yep. exchange as it was then so it's just you know it's, it's, it's from a visual point of view if you never read a word of the book you would get such a huge amount of pleasure from it I think.
1: And Con a final question then I suppose that it shows that there's so much more history still to tell as well with the forthcoming volumes 2 and 3
0: Yes well uh, volume 2 is the Viking evidence we found it'll be a very substantial volume as well it's um It's gone through all the editorial process at the moment and is going as we speak uh, to the designer and uh, we'd hope it will be published uh, relatively early next year. The volumes uh, we're still working on. We we call it volume three, but it will be uh, in two bound parts probably a boxed set uh, and will be the remainder of the archaeology and the finds and specialist reports in in the second part. Um, and There's a huge amount of archaeology in that the medieval period, the medieval castle itself, uh, and all this post-medieval material from from the moat, uh, etc.
1: Very good Well my thanks to my panel of experts For joining me tonight To discuss the history of Dublin Castle Professor Sean Duffy of Trinity College Dublin Professor John Montague Of the American University of Sharjah And Con Manning Who is an archaeologist With the National Monument Service And the book is called Dublin Castle From Fortress to Palace Published in hardback by Wordwell Books And the authors are Sean Duffy John Montague Kevin Mulligan And Michael O'Neill Well that does bring us to the end Of another edition of Talking History My thanks to my producer Maraisos Sullivan and Peter Malloy on sound. We've got more debate and discussion next week, so hope you can join us then. We've been talking history. Good night.